Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is what we will read together and study together this morning. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar, and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, we ask now in these moments that by the power of your written word and your Holy Spirit moving among us, that what we know not you would teach us, that what we have not you would give us, and that what we are not you would make us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if, um, before I just read Exodus chapter 1, if I had taken a poll of the congregation, what is Exodus chapter 1 about? I wonder what the answers might be. Now, I know many of you in Sunday school have just finished a study of Exodus, so maybe there would be some who remembered right offhand that Exodus chapter 1 
is about uh, these midwives and the toil of Israel and Egypt. But my first guess, even though I've read Exodus probably dozens of times throughout the years, my first guess would probably have been Moses. Just because of my own Bible knowledge, I would have thought, well, Exodus is about Moses. He's the main human character in the book in the story, so it would make sense that chapter 1 would be about Moses, introducing us to Moses, that the story of Moses being put in the basket and sent down the Nile and uh, his recovery by the Egyptian princess and all these things, that that would be chapter 1. And it wouldn't be a bad guess, but as you see as we've read chapter 1, that's not correct. That's not what Exodus chapter 1 is about. Why wouldn't Exodus 1 be about Moses? Well, because Moses, who actually wrote the book of Exodus, is a capable storyteller. And he knows that he has to build up the drama and the suspense for the entrance of the quote-unquote main protagonist of the story. From a human perspective, Moses is going to come onto the scene and change the landscape. But we have to know what's happening first. This chapter in Exodus reminds me of those little sections of television shows where they they come on and they say, previously, on such and such, whatever show it might be. It's only 30 to 45 seconds of uh, extrapolated clips from the previous episode or perhaps episodes from the past season to let you know what is going to be important in this next episode that you're about to watch. And then that first scene might be a sweeping landscape shot to show you that you're in the south of France or you're in Washington, D.C. Or it'll be a quick scene of dialogue that's going to set up the whole rest of the episode. And what this chapter in Exodus is doing is just that. It's telling us where we just had been in Genesis, how Genesis ended, Exodus picks up, and it tells us what's been happening in a certain number of years that have passed between Genesis and Exodus, and it's preparing us for the entrance of Moses and for the plagues in Egypt and for the crossing of the Red Sea and eventual crossing into the Promised Land. But this chapter, so this this chapter could be thought of as a passing moment, and when you're binge-watching shows on Netflix, you skip through the previously part because you just watched the episode, so you don't need to know what just happened. But we're not binge reading this morning, and we're just going to look at this chapter, and I want to show us how God, though he's very, he's only mentioned once, actually twice in this chapter, is immensely at work in the lives of his people, even though, as we read this, it's a dark picture for Israel at this moment. But God is at work, and I want to show us three rays of hope that the people of Israel, I hope and pray, were clinging to in these days in slavery in Egypt. But before we do that, let's do what this chapter is doing and set the scene. We have the people of Israel who are in Egypt. Joseph went there as uh, a slave, sold by his brothers into slavery, ends up in Egypt. And as we can quickly just tell the story of Joseph, that he... Um, from prison, went from prison to the second in command in all of Egypt because of his ability to interpret dreams. And so he was favored by Pharaoh, put in, put in charge of things, saved the, the nation of Egypt from a famine that would have destroyed their land, and 
at the end of the book of Exodus, all of Jacob's brothers and his father Jacob uh, come to Egypt to dwell in the land. And so that's where this story picks up, and it quickly moves to Joseph and his brothers and all of that generation have died. So several decades have passed, maybe a couple of hundred years or more have passed. That generation is gone, and there's a new sheriff in town in, in Egypt, so to speak. A new king has arisen, and we find out that this pharaoh is quite forgetful. He's forgotten, or maybe doesn't even know, what happened with Joseph and his ancestors. He doesn't know about Joseph saving the nation of Egypt all those years ago. He doesn't remember that Pharaoh favored the people of Israel and was going to protect them and give them sanctuary. And instead of seeing Joseph and his people as a friend and an ally and someone to protect, he sees them as a threat. And Pharaoh becomes not only forgetful, but also paranoid at what could happen if the people of Israel decide to start a rebellion. Because while the generation that came to Egypt originally has died, the scriptures tell us that the people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied and were prospering in the land of Egypt. And so Pharaoh decides something must be done to stop what could happen if Israel decides to rebel. And so he gives them hard labor. He gives them taskmasters. He gives them jobs to do that aren't just jobs. They weren't getting paid and they weren't being compensated and they weren't being praised. They were being beaten and being forced and being afflicted and being crushed under the weight of their heavy labor and their burdens. They built him store cities. And then, much to the chagrin, I suggest of Pharaoh, the fruitfulness and the multiplying and the flourishing of Israel did not stop. Even though they were wearied and beaten down with heavy labor, Exodus in chapter Exodus one twelve says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So it became more even more ruthless, even more hard, even more labor inducing hard service and ruthless dealing and all kinds of service for Egypt. But seeing that these things weren't working, Pharaoh gets an idea. If we can't beat them down and crush them under the weight of hard work, we can stop their fruitfulness. We can instruct midwives, the midwives to the Hebrew women to kill their male children, and that will eventually end all productivity and it's not a it's not an illogical plan but it is a cruel and ruthless one to say the least but here's where I want to give us three rays of hope three rays of hope that are hopefully going to shine brightly in this text in this dark backdrop of hard service and the threat of death of their male children And the first ray of hope I want to show you is that the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God. They're told to 
kill these Hebrew male children by Pharaoh. And yet, in verse 17, Moses tells us that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, we could read that and go, well, that's not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, they're supposed to fear God. That's part of the covenant that they made with God, even all the way back in Genesis with Abraham. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All these things we could point to, that that's a small thing, right? And in, in reality, it is a small thing to some degree, but it's a hugely significant thing. Because consider who Pharaoh is and what kind of power he wields. This was not a suggestion from Pharaoh. This was not a, well, if you can, I want you to do this. Or if you feel like it, I want you to kill these male babies. No, this was a direct command edict from Pharaoh. Who clearly is already paranoid and a bit uneasy with his position. And who is, if he's not afraid to kill these little baby boys, he won't be afraid to strike these midwives dead where they stand. And yet, the midwives feared God. Pharaoh was worthy of their fear from a human perspective. But the midwives knew that God was worthy of their fear far more than Pharaoh. Pharaoh could strike them dead where they stand, but God could judge them with eternal separation from him. And so they feared God They stood firm in their convictions that this was wrong. And they weren't going to do what Pharaoh commanded them. And then when they were asked, why did you do this? Why did you disobey me, essentially? Why did you let these male children live? The midwives say, in verse 19, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now there's debate and you can conjecture of what exactly is going on in this verse. I think we have actually three options to consider. The midwives could here be just telling a lie. They've just decided, we're going to tell this lie. It's the better option of the two. Either we kill these babies or we lie to Pharaoh. I'm going to take the lie. It could be that. It could be that. It very well could be. That they just lied. And none of us would blame them. None of us would say, oh, you you should have just killed the babies instead. No, we would take the lie. And we know that no matter what the option we pick, verse 20 says God dealt well with the midwives. So if they lied, God did dealt well with them. Not because they lied, but because they feared him and obeyed him. And valued the life of this little baby boy even more than their own. But a second option could be that they actually told the truth. That it is, for some reason, anatomically, biologically true that Hebrew women are more vigorous in childbirth than Egyptian women. Could be that, I think. I think it could be. The scriptures don't make it clear whether that's true or not, but it could be true. could be true that God and his sovereignty made it so from the beginning of creation that this would be the case. But I think there's actually a third option, similar to the second, but a little bit nuanced. What if 
it wasn't necessarily anatomically, biologically true that Hebrew women were more vigorous in childbirth, but that God in his sovereignty for this window of time said, you are going to be more vigorous in childbirth. So that these male babies would be saved, and so that these midwives, because of their fear of the Lord more than the fear of Pharaoh and man, would be able to tell the truth. Now that, I don't know if that's true. Scriptures don't tell us. But I kind of like the idea of that. And we can pause and think, well, God, God doesn't do that kind of thing, though, does he? God can't really do that, can he? We've just spent three or four weeks thinking about the coming of our Savior through a virgin birth. God did that. We see t- countless examples throughout the Bible of women who are barren, who are given children. Old women who, should have, who have no business, physically speaking, to have children are given children by God. I think it's very possible that God did something just like that here. But regardless of which option we choose, the important thing here in this ray of hope is that these women, these midwives, feared God. They feared him and they obeyed what they knew to be right. That murdering a baby is wrong. And they took the risk of either telling a lie or even telling the truth. Because let's face it, even telling the truth to Pharaoh does not guarantee that he wasn't going to strike you dead anyway. For disobeying his order. So the midwives feared God more than man. Even the most powerful man in their, in their world, Pharaoh. So my question for you this morning, do you fear God more than man? The more progressive our culture becomes, the more uh, in vogue tolerance and politically correct speech becomes in our culture, the more many of the things that we espouse as doctrine will become hate speech to our world. Days are not far before people will become offended when we say that God made man and woman and that those genders are not decided upon at somebody's whim, but they are given to us from birth by our Creator. That is already quickly becoming something that's not a popular opinion, and yet we claim it to be fact. It is becoming unpopular to say that marriage is meant for one man and one woman, not two men or two women or some other odd combination that they might dream up in the future. These issues, though they are not the central issues of the Bible, they are clearly taught and they are clearly commanded for us to know and follow and believe and espouse. And when we lose some of these things, we are denying the truth of the, God, of, the, of the Scriptures. And when we deny one piece, we have to throw the rest away as well. We have to take it all or nothing. So when the pressure comes from our co-workers, our bosses, our president, or whomever else may come into power to deny these truths, to deny some of these God revealed truths of nature will we cave and fear man 
or will we fear God and risk the consequence? But it's a ray of hope that these women in the midst of this darkness would fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. The second ray of hope I want to show you is that God blessed the midwives. He rewarded them. We already touched on it. God dealt well with the midwives, verse 20. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And again, we could say, well, that's kind of a small thing, right? I mean, God rewarded them. That's great. That's part of the deal, though, isn't it? I mean, God promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. So it's run-of-the-mill. It could sound run-of-the-mill, but think about where these people are at this moment. They're not living in a world that is continually refreshing and happy and with lots of signs of good things coming. They're getting beaten down, literally and figuratively. They're getting crushed under the weight of their work. And now, people getting pregnant is now a scare more than it is a blessing. Because what if I have a boy? What if they kill my son? These are the worries and the fears of these people on a day-to-day basis. It's a dark moment. And so to hear a report or to hear it spread throughout the, the, the village that these midwives feared God and didn't do what Pharaoh said, and then not, not only did they do that, but then that God rewarded them. That had to be a ray of hope, not just for these women, but for all of them around them who said, God has not forgotten us. There's a, small, there's a small but very large piece of this puzzle that we're missing. In Genesis chapter 15, all the way back there with Abraham, God says this in verses 13 and 14. He told Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Hundreds of years before Exodus chapter 1, God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be slaves in another land. They're going to be put with hard work and labor. And it's going to be for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation and I will bring you out with great possessions. Undoubtedly, the Israelites knew those verses. They had to have known, whether in those exact wording, or they knew that God had made this decree and this promise. And that when they hear of the midwife's fear of God, and they hear that it's rewarded, that God dealt well with them, and that he gave them families, they had to think, He has not forgotten us. We are not forsaken. I'll just ask you this morning. Perhaps you feel like you're in a darkness. Perhaps the prospect of a new year is more burdensome than joyful. Because you've thought 2017... 
has beaten me down and I'm afraid 2018 could be worse. Maybe it struggles with the loss of loved ones or infertility or miscarriage. Maybe it's a struggle at work that you just feel you feel like you're, you're giving too much time to your job and enough time to your family. Perhaps there's quarreling amongst you and your, your spouse or your house with your children is filled with more strife than gladness. Whatever cloud that might be hanging over you, however large it may loom or however small it may seem, are you aware that God has not forgotten you? Are you aware that in the smallest of things, like an encouraging note from a friend or a warm hug from your mom, or a truth spoken in love from the scriptures that you are remembered by God. That those things are those little rays of hope shining into your darkness. That those things should be cherished and treasured and remembered. Are you looking for them? And are you rejoicing in them? And are you knowing that this is just a sign that he hasn't forgotten me? The third ray of hope I want to show you is the most obvious one in this text. It's mentioned three times. Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And then in verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Important things come in threes. And this reminder of they grew strong and were multiplied and were fruitful and flourishing comes three times in this passage. And again, we might think, what's the big deal? They were having lots of kids. I mean, that's a blessing. It's a good thing. We should rejoice in that, sure. But what is, what is the significance? Why is Moses so emphatic as he writes this, that they were growing and flourishing and multiplying? Well, it goes back to their covenant with Abraham. God had made a covenant with Abraham that you and your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. And even in this darkest, perhaps darkest moment of Israel's history, certainly up to this point, God is fulfilling that promise. Again, God has not forgotten them. God is still at work. And when you think about the conditions that they were under, it's not, to my understanding, really conducive to having a lot of kids. I mean, these people are tired and weary and beaten down and broken, and they're hurting physically and spiritually and emotionally. And that isn't the time that you're thinking, let's have lots of kids. 
Let's make this happen. It's not the time that most people think of as the joyous time of welcoming new life. And yet, even the more, the the scriptures are so uh, clear in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they grew, the more they multiplied, almost as if the affliction of Pharaoh was actually making them more fruitful. It was counteractive to what his purpose was. And I don't know how God does that. But I trust that he has and that he did. God has not forgotten his covenant with Israel. And that had to be. I hope it was something that they thought were growing. God is still with us. He's still fulfilling his purpose and his plan through us. Even though we're slaves. Even though we're beaten down. Even though now threat of death to our baby boys is looming and real. He is still with us and he is still for us. We're still flourishing. I was reminded of a story in my own life. And to compare what difficulty I was experiencing at this moment, at that moment, is silliness comparing it to what Israel is going through here. But indulge me for just a minute. It was several years ago I was taking, um, I was taking a Hebrew class at seminary. And um, it was difficult. I was having a hard time. And that particular morning, I'd gone to class, and I was doing my work, and my professor was going over it, and by the time he was finished with it, there was, it was bleeding red. Uh, I think some of the ink actually went through the paper onto the table. It was so covered in mistakes that he had corrected. And it just dejected me. It just made me feel like I wasn't going to get it. I wasn't going to get Hebrew. I wasn't going to do well. And uh, left class that afternoon, that morning, some other things. It just wasn't a good day. I wasn't in a good spiritual place. And I was back on campus for something else, a meeting, and I'm walking across the campus. And over to my right, I see uh, a friendly face. It was uh, a professor of mine at my undergrad who was walking towards the same direction as I was, Dr. Oreck. And uh, he's always been a, a favorite professor. He's always been kind of a special person. But uh, at that moment, when I saw him, I, I wasn't excited to see him because I wasn't in a good space in my head. And uh, I almost tried to avoid him, but I, I was too late. And uh, he saw me, and he said my name, and he called to me, and he we started walking in the same direction, and, and he looked at me, and I don't know if he knew or if he could sense it or what it was, but he just looked at me and said, are you flourishing? And just as we walked, I just kind of spilled my guts about Hebrew, and that was really getting me down. And He just had a word in season. And it reminded me that one circumstance or problem in my life does not determine the state of my soul. That I still am a child of God. That I'm loved. That question, are you flourishing, has become something that I use for myself. And then I try to ask others who are close to me just to 
just to be more than a flippant what's happening or what's up or how you doing or not there's anything wrong with those questions but there's a time and a place with true friends or your family that you need to ask a question that probes a little deeper and that gets more that gets past the circumstantial surface level of well this is happening and this is happening and good or bad And gets to, how are you feeling spiritually? How are you doing? Are you thriving in God's word? Are you resting in your salvation in Jesus Christ? Even in the midst of pain and darkness. Whether it's just a bad Hebrew day. Or your family is literally on the line. Three ways, three rays of hope. The midwives feared God. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people of Israel continued to flourish and grow as the scene is set for the emergence of a deliverer. Moses comes onto the scene in chapter two. Moses, who was born and hidden away for fear of death. Moses, who would grow and become the spokesman for God on behalf of his people to the tyrant Pharaoh. Moses, who would lead his people on dry land through the Red Sea. And eventually, after some twists and turns and some grumbling and complaining, to the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And we're reminded that Moses, as great a deliverer as he was for Israel, he is a shadow of something better. Because Jesus is born a baby and hidden away in Egypt of all places for fear of death by Herod. Jesus is not just a spokesman for God, but comes as the word made flesh to dwell among us. Jesus does what Moses couldn't do. He doesn't just lead us. He gives his own life for us. He lays down his life because we, like Israel, are in the midst of a darkness. We also are ruled by a ruthless tyrant. But our tyrant is no Pharaoh on the Nile. Our shackles are not literal shackles. But our tyrant is our own sinful desire. Our tyrant is the fear and knowledge that death is coming. And that apart from Christ, it is an end. And in our darkness of sin and death looming, Christ emerges as that greater Moses to deliver his own life, to lay it down willingly shedding his blood for the remission of our sins, all of our guilt and all of our shame, 
to raise again to newness of life. That we could join him. That we could be with him. That we could be his captives led out to freedom on dry land. To a promised land flowing with sweeter and better milk and honey. An everlasting kingdom. The kingdom that we read about in Revelation 21. That is eternal and forever. So our Savior, our Deliverer, emerges onto the scene far greater than Moses could ever be and offers us eternal life. His light scatters our darkness. Whether it's the darkness of our sinful sinful habits and desires or the darkness of our circumstances in our life, God is there, ever present with us. Jesus is a faithful high priest, comforting us, binding up our wounds, leading us to eternal rest with him. So I'll ask you this morning, do you trust this Jesus? Will you trust this Jesus? Do you love him? Do you value him more than anything? Do you fear him, fear God more than you fear man? Will you stand for him? Will you follow him? And will you cling to those rays of hope that shine into your life? That Jesus, his light will become brighter and brighter and shine out all the clearer. And push back your darkness and conquer your sin because death is defeated. And Jesus reigns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word that is true. We thank you for the story of Israel that so beautifully captures our own lives, our own spiritual journey. That we were in darkness, slaves to sin and unrighteousness, but you have emerged as our deliverer our Savior, our friend. Help us fear you. Help us see and savor those rays of hope that you shine into our lives. That we would know you have never forgotten us and you never will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.